This is my own private domicile and I will not be harassed! Bitch! Gangsters, what's up guys? What's the grant to a motherfucker like me? Can you please remind me? Get the world by the tail! Fat broads and horse-faced lesbians. Cute as shit. Oh, 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 skip, skip, skip. If you don't chew big red, then f you. That's so horny. Could you imagine if I hit the old water pipe with that thing? Oh. Great cash, homie. Three, two, one, let's fuck! Everybody's got to hear the shit on W Balls, W Balls, W Balls. And welcome back to another episode of the Do Not Listen to This Podcast. I am your host, Sam LaCrosse, saying do not listen to this, leave, and come back and watch it sometime when, or listen to it rather, when you are ready to listen to it. Okay, now that we're over that shitty intro, let's get into today's topic. So, COVID is surging again, apparently. I don't know whether, like, I think a lot of the statistics of this thing are getting either manipulated. Like, my dad always has a saying that served me very well. Whenever people throw up random percentages at you on a TV and like, you know, kind of like mansplains you into saying like, ah, la, 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 look at this. Um, you, sh you should think twice about it. And you really should because honestly, especially to the people that actually listen to this stuff, I, I know some people with some pretty significant health deficiencies, whether that be like an autoimmune disorder or some things like that. Obviously, I am not speaking for everybody here, but what I am saying is follow what the data actually tells you. Just because the cases are surging, just because this and that doesn't mean we have to flip shit doesn't mean that everything is happening, but that does not mean that everyone else will not flip shit for using it for a political agenda or a business agenda or something of the nature, which I think is what's happening. Because, for example, in Austin, Texas, we are talking about mass mandates again. I believe the University of Texas just said they're forcing all students into a mass mandate when they come onto in-person classes in the fall. And they are going to have them mask up for, I, I believe, every single class. I don't, now, granted, this could be very wrong, so someone please actually fact check me on this. Like, not just like fact, fact check, fact check, but actually fact check me on this. Because I don't know if what I'm saying is right. I'm only seeing like local news that, that's popping up on the TV when I'm at the gym in the morning. But we are going down or we are going back up in terms of severity of like the levels of COVID awareness in my area. And I've, you know, I know I've been talking to some friends back up in the Northeast, some friends back in, friends and family back in Ohio that are saying that this shit is getting, you know, getting serious again. Uh, I think personally, and this is not to scare anybody, this is going to be very, very real with people. I think they're going to lock us down again because I think in this point, the people in charge have either two options when it comes to this stuff. If, if it, now, granted, this is all if it's really going to get bad again, if it's really going to surge massively Cases are going to spike again. People are going to start dying in droves, particularly un and unfortunately old people going to start dying and compromised people going to start dying in droves again. The government has two options here, primarily the government, but other, other powerful entities, corporations, businesses, people, powerful people, influencers, things of that nature. They have two options when it comes to this stuff, and neither of them are good. They could either do option A, 
which is lock everything down again, saying, you know, it's going to be another, like another, you know, went like, uh, like I think the CDC director called it like the, an, an omen of death or something of the nature when everything or like, or, or like, like imminent, imminent doom was the phrase imminent doom. Either it's going to be imminent doom again, and they are going to basically lock everything down again. We're going to not see each other again for another six months in the winter months when it starts creeping back in, more people are inside, Every, this thing spreads around the Delta variant, there could be other variants that come up, there probably will be more variants that come up as we've seen in the past, and they could just do what they did again, lock everything down, everyone down again, shack everybody up in apartment buildings and houses and close down businesses and all this other shit. And they could do a lot of damage to the economy in particular and people that own small businesses because as we've seen, the stock market's going real crazy the last couple of days. But as we've seen over the pandemic, the what happens usually is with bad leadership, with bad policy decisions. And my dad is currently actually going through something like this in his company right now, where they're talking about some things in the leadership perspective that he does not think is going to be a long-term good idea. And when bad leadership makes bad decisions, it's the little guy that foots the bill, always. It always is the little guy that foots the bill. And when that happens and small people get crushed, that's going to cause anti-government sentiment, anti-big business sentiment, which is already happening and already did happen throughout the last year and a half with COVID. Or they could do the other option. They could do the other option, which I don't think they are going to do because of the one thing, their ego. They could admit they were wrong. They could admit that it was wrong to lock people up for that amount of time to absolutely throw the hammer down on small businesses and get people out of jobs and put more people dependent on government stimulus money and everything like that. This is not a political statement, by the way. I think this is seriously a problem. It is a systemic issue with our ruling class of society. They can either be wrong or they could really, really double down on their position in order to prove that they are right, in order to maintain the moral, intellectual, whatever the fuck you want to call it, superiority complex they have. And I'm hoping this doesn't happen. I'm hoping they pick the other option, which is to admit they're wrong, have everyone be personally responsible about themselves because people are smart and they can figure out the own decisions for their life and everything else like that. But unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. I think what we're going to do is to get a mix of mass mandates, some lockdown stuff, restrictions. It, it's already happening. And I think if Hurricane Delta variant, whatever, gets up into rate like you know going up in crazy amounts of cases i think we're going to see more of the same from the government which brings me back and the i shouldn't say the government because i don't want to sound totally anti-government here but anti just big people who are controlling levers in society anyway so that brings me back to today so when i wrote this post it was on may the 4th on star wars day in in 2020 uh, Star Wars Day, may the 4th be with you, may the force be with you, if you know, you're know you not a nerd like I am and you don't think about this shit all the time. So I wrote this on and finished this on, published this on May 4th, 2020, which was about a little over, I think, six weeks into lockdown time, at least that was, I always throw it back, I think it was March 17th, the day that at the time President Trump went on the TV and basically said, we are shutting down travel, people raided stores, you know, when we started saying like, oh shit, this thing is fucking serious and we got to really clamp down on everything. And I was thinking of some of the other costs of COVID other than the obvious, not really with, you know, just with business or just with government or just with the disease and people dying. I thought about other things in terms of the mental capacity of everything. And I kind of really wanted to um, just kind of hammer down into some of the emotions we were feeling. And the one emotion in particular that we were coming up against, which I did not really see coming, and I don't think a lot of people saw coming, 
but I think is very, very important. And if we go back into a quarantine-ish thing in the future, which we very well could, particularly in the states with stricter governments and everything of that nature, this could potentially rear its ugly head again. So I wanted to revisit this. I haven't read this, I don't think, really in depth since I published it. And I don't really read a lot of my shit once I publish it. But, you know, I've, it's going to be interesting to go back and see kind of where everything goes about. So I will stop my rambling monologue and I will start into this. Okay, let's go. So this was written in week whatever of quarantine. I think it was either six or seven. So what started once as a faraway issue in an internet meme has now turned our way of life as we know it upside down or had turned it upside down. Working people couldn't work, which makes them feel, feel useless. Students couldn't go to school, which made them feel anxious and behind. We, have, we had shelter-in-place orders instituted, which made us feel imprisoned with the people that we spend most of our time with, which is our families. Oh, and the large amounts of people getting sick and dying thing, which is still unfortunately true. And it might not be as exaggerated. Like I said, stats can be manipulated. But in any case, so it was time for us, and it's time for us now to face the facts. COVID-19 fucking sucks. It's the worst. It's horrible. And it's very likely we haven't felt the worst parts of this from a lot of areas. And I think we're seeing this now in terms of Things like inflation going up. I mean, consumer price. I, I saw a um, thing on LinkedIn. The consumer confidence index has plummeted in the last couple months. So that's, again, very scary. Again, being driven by the Delta variant. The media has somehow gotten worse. But can you imagine when it really gets politicized and weaponized in about six months? This was before the election. And it did get politicized and weaponized in about six months. Our mental health has taken a huge hit. But this is kind of what is going to be the trend going forward because this is obviously has not been great for our mental states during this time. And this amount of pessimistic overload is a mess and it can lead you down a perpetual flaming, flaming rabbit hole of hell and shit if you let it, which let's admit we've all done at least once so far during the pandemic. So in this case, before about a week before I wrote this, I tried to kept, keep my Twitter used to a minimum. I got rid of my Twitter after the summer we had with the George Floyd incident and the riots and the protests and everything, I just couldn't keep up with it. But there was one tweet that I noticed that caught my eye about the coronavirus testing within the United States, which this led me to perusing at least 74 articles until I got to one that said that our world leaders were all involved in some elaborate cover-up to start nuclear war on the common folk of humankind or something like that. And it was a horrific experience, to say the least. It left me feeling more friggity fucked up than I had felt in a while. However, I then began to realize something. I thought back to the other times this, this had happened, one in the first part of the outbreak when I was on spring break. This is right after the government had closed all international travel in mid-March. I remember my thoughts snowballing for a whole day, each scenario becoming worse and worse and eventually coming to some kind of government nuclear holocaust experience once again. But are these thoughts rational? Of course they aren't. There's no way foreign governments could work together that well on anything. But um, ching. But no, a conspiracy nuclear war theory probably isn't probable in the slightest. So why do we have these thoughts? And the answer could probably be best summed up when I decided I needed to dump it and who I needed to dump it on. My mother. So my mom walked back in from work and asked how my day was, and my conversation started out similarly to how my thoughts did. They started to get more, they started smaller and more rational, my job start date, my graduation, etc. But eventually snow, snowballed into something absolutely ludicrous. I have nothing, my whole life is fucked, etc. It ended with my mom and I screaming at each other, and I took a slice of pizza and went to my room. Worst slice of pizza I'd had in a minute. I've had I had in a minute. It had nothing to do with the pizza. That's when it hit me, and I realized the one good thing that was coming out of this otherwise awful situation. We are face to face with our own fear, shame, and vulnerability. We quite literally have nowhere to hide. The situation has stripped us all of our armor and has forced us to be ourselves, and it's hurting us tremendously. 
One of the primary reasons that long-form content, <clears throat> excuse me, books, podcasts, the, the blog, if you read my blog, don'treadthisblog.com, shameless plug, have come into focus is very simple. <clears throat> it's incredibly hard to listen to a stupid person for a very long period of time. Stupid people thrive on Twitter when they're limited to 280 characters. You can tell if a person is a dumbass by probably their second paragraph in a Facebook post. You can listen to a 60-second Instagram video and think the person has merit, only to visit the 20-minute YouTube video and realize that the person has two brain cells and mint, mint jewel resin shoved between their ears. The same goes with our cells. We can only violate the first don't, don't be fake, for so long before we want to puke at how superficial and botoxy we feel. We try our best to put on our, on our armor and wear masks with ourselves and people. But in certain situations, we are forced to take them off and look in the mirrors. This is one of those situations, and we've been forced to do it for greater than, than now, 18 months in most cases. We are being forced to look at ourselves and confront ourselves, whether it be in positive or negative fashion. We cannot run forever. Running is cowardly, and it never works out in people's best interest, except if you're in a Charlemagne the God, Funk Flex, TMZ situation. Shout out Charla, look it up, it's really, really funny. Running from ourselves only delays the inevitable. It worsens the blow. Remember the rubber band example I used for the economy of interest rates, where the longer you go to fix a problem, the worse that problem becomes and the more it hurts when you stretch out over the length of time fixing it. Yeah, that applies here too. Your fear, shame, and vulnerability will come out. It's inevitable. You cannot run and hide forever. Anyone else hear that the Chinese divorce rate spiked after the national quarantine was lifted? I did too. And I bet it's going to happen in the United States as well. Our relationships are where our fear, shame, and vulnerability can really bite us in the ass. And none is more telling than that statistic. Could you imagine being married to someone, someone some serious shit, aka coronavirus, hitting the fan and finding out they were totally different than who you thought they were? That would be pretty horrifying. I half-heartedly joked with my friends that as soon as we went back to normal, we'd have a new national public health crisis in our hands. That of the modern American 20-29 to 29 year old citizen. As soon as this quarantine is lifted, we, the most vulnerable generation in the world, will sprint to things to hide it. Want to drink, eat, fuck, and smoke everything in sight. Some of us might even ascend into heaven when we hit blackout in a crowded bar for the first time in months, and I know some people that have. The fact is, a lot of us are, dealing, are terrible at dealing with fear, shame, and vulnerability in at least one aspect of our lives, one that we're coming face-to-face -face with during the pandemic. But that's the good thing. We're getting exposed and uncomfortable. Some of us might finally be waking up. I hope for your sake that you are. Regardless of what you think of times in crisis, there is opportunity in every single one of them, if you're willing to look, and this is a good or bad thing, by the way, as we've seen with the government stuff. In this context, we can use our current pandemic crisis to set up our post-crisis selves as less shitty people, if we want to do that, and if you don't, that's your choice, but you probably should do it. If we can learn to better manage our fear, shame, and vulnerability, and the insecurities that come with it, I think that's a great thing to come out of this new into the new world with. To address these problems, we're going to be diving into the psychology of fear and vulnerability, the critical turning point that happens when you hit your rock bottom of shame, and how to use the dichotomy of fear to confront them. So pull up a chair, start drinking, eating, fucking, or smoking something, and let's get started. So me and my girlfriend, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, have been on a break for a while. But we're back now, bitches, and we're here to word vomit a bunch of unnecessary definitions to form the starting point of this conversation. Fear, insecurity, shame, and vulnerability. The definition for fear is, quote, an unpleasant, often strong emotion caused by anticipation or awareness of danger, end quote. The definition of insecurity is deficient in assurance beset by fear or anxiety, end quote. The definition for shame is, quote, 
a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt or shortcoming, end quote. And the definition for vulnerability is, quote, capable of being physically or emotionally wounded, end quote. Brene Brown is a leading author, researcher, and speaker on shame and vulnerability. And you may know her from her book, Daring Greatly, or one of the two TED Talks that helped for, excuse me, form the basis of the book and shoot her into the stratosphere. Going into reading her book, I thought I was going to want to throw up 20 pages in. However, I ended up loving it. It was shockingly real and unwoke and was grounded in over 12 years of interview-based data and researched among hundreds of people. She's very impressive and she knows her stuff. The main reason I read her book was that a lot of people had screamed, read this book at me. However, I had no idea what it was about, so I succumbed to the peer pressure and bought the damn thing. And it turned out that it was much needed in terms of self-reflection. I think I'm pretty good at vulnerability. I do bare my soul every week on a blog and podcast if you didn't realize by now. But I definitely am not perfect at it. I need to work in a very specific area, which I'll get to later. More soul-bearing, yay. What was most impactful about what Brown wrote was the association of shame with vulnerability and how the two are linked at the hip. Me and my girlfriend, the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, have been on a break, so I'm going to use Brown's definition for both of these words. Brown's definition for the word vulnerability is, quote, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure, end quote, while her definition for the word shame is, quote, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and unworthy of love or belonging, end quote. The thesis of Brown's book is that vulnerability is the key to developing intimate relationships and being courageous about going about our lives, and I agree. However, there's a small problem with vulnerability that leads us to avoid it. The, quote, uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure that she references, when left unchecked, leads directly to the definition of shame. Shame is one of the most painful emotions you can experience, and sh as she and we will all know to be true. What I found most interesting, by the way, was how she, or, or what I found most interesting in this way, was how she described shame when it was divided by gender. Brown describes the gender differences of shame as, quote, big webs and tiny boxes. Webs correlate to women, and boxes correlate to men. Brown describes the relationship of the web of shame and vulnerability as, quote, doing everything and doing everything perfectly and with grace, end quote. Women, according to her, are stereotyped into fitting into numerous categories all at once, being a mom, being a wife, working to take care of a house, driving kids to a soccer game, etc. These different aspects of womanhood intersect and cross one another, forming the, quote, web. Whenever a woman betrays one of those webs for another web, saying, looking sexy versus like a, quote, typical mom, she immediately gets stoned by judgment and shame starts to form within her. The problem with this is, the more interconnected those webs are, the more likely they'll all be likely to lead a domino into one another, which is a conundrum and a half. As a man, Brown's definition of, quote, boxes was pretty tough to hear, because I agree with it so much. Originally, Brown only did research pertaining to women, and was hosting a talk and book signing when she had her breakthrough moment around men's shame. Brown was signing a book for a wife and mom, or a wife mom and her three daughters, when the husband that correlated to that family came over to her as the family was leaving. The husband asked her why she didn't talk about men's shame, and, being completely candid, she said that it wasn't her field of study, which was true, and she really didn't have a defense for it, nor should she have. The man, unsatisfied, motioned to his wife and daughters and proceeded to drop a nuke on the rest of her book signing. Quote, They'd rather see me die on top of my white horse than watch me fall down. When we reach out and be vulnerable, we get the shit beat out of us. And don't tell me it's from the guys and the coaches and the dads, because the women in my life are harder on me than anyone else. End quote. It's so true, and that's exactly how boxes work. 
Men have a defined role about how they're, quote, supposed to act. As soon as we step outside that box, we get stoned by judgment and hit with the shame gremlins. As you all know, masculinity is not a bad thing. But as we know from Brown, vulnerability is not. There must be a balance between the, between the two. And I've seen both men and women be destroyed by who they're, quote, supposed to be a bunch of times. This phenomenon then leads to a deeper level that Brown didn't hit as hard, but one that I think is necessary to talk about. Fear. If we are constantly accosted for expressing vulnerability and are constantly grilled by shame, as we are a lot of times in our culture from a lot of different areas, we begin to fear being vulnerable due to how we associate it with shame. Fear is a perception, as are most of our emotions in our head, and if we let it dominate our psyche, we will eventually be consumed by it. If it hasn't happened to you, it's most definitely happened to someone you know. Mine will begin to come out later. How do we get rid of the fear of vulnerability and shame? Well, for most people, we avoid it. We do this by violating the first don't. Don't be fake. We wear, ma we wear, ugh, we wear masks. We play ourselves up and put armor to protect ourselves. You probably notice this if you've seen any college male in any bar ever. We have a lot of ways of doing it, so much so that it varies by individual person to a certain degree. It's a natural reaction to avoid vulnerability and shame. This is the whole doing like 477 curls before you go to the bar and wearing a really tight shirt, even though you're not really ripped, except for your arms, which aren't that ripped anyway. But anyways, I'm going to move past that. Why do we avoid vulnerability and shame? Well, because we're hardwired to do so. When we're born, we're born completely helpless. We are inherently needy and fear anything that gets in the way of getting what we need and interrupting our comfort. And we have to be taught to do so otherwise. It's simply not in the DNA of humankind until it's taught upon us by someone who knows better. Now, let's relate this back to the coronavirus and the main point I hit on earlier. For the thesis of this post, I stated that maybe the one good thing about the coronavirus is that it's exposing our vulnerability that's been hidden under a mountain of shit, some of it being buried for perhaps years or longer. We can no longer violate the first don't in most cases. We can't show off our dinners in nice restaurants and Instagram stories anymore, or at least we couldn't. We can't buy things in the same manner that we used to, nor can we flex on them at social media to make ourselves feel good. We can't numb our vulnerability with business, because this is the least busy we've been in a country in probably decades. They've all been taken away by COVID-19, or at least they were. We have nowhere left to run and hide. And this is a good thing. The primary reason for it being good is that avoiding things generally doesn't work. You can't wear a mask forever, and I could insert a cheesy mask joke here, but I'm not going to. You can violate the first don't forever. You, or you can't violate the first don't forever. It eats at you. Just ask John, Don Draper and Walter White. They'll tell you. Or any person that's completely based their lives on fraudulent and trivial things for that matter. Why? What happens when, you catch, when someone catches you with your mask off? Are they going to like what they see? Can you ever trust somebody to like your vulnerable self? A lot of people don't know how to answer these questions. Mostly because they won't answer the things like they won't like the answer that they hear rather. Joey Badass didn't rap, I don't trust these bitches, they won't ever catch me slipping, for nothing. Someone will catch you being vulnerable. It will happen. It is inevitable. A lot like Thanos. However, like Thanos, inevitable doesn't mean destruction. The fact that it happens matters, but what happens at that point is more important. The rock bottom of shame is the greatest point for personal transformation in this regard. Generally, whenever someone hears the words rock bottom, the connotation is never good. The reaction usually isn't either. People get defensive. They lash out and make personal attacks against the person who's trying to help them, especially if they know, if they know the person is right. 
In most cases, coming face-to-face with our fear and vulnerability is not a bad thing. It may feel bad, but it's not inherently bad. The rock bottom of shame is when we get gut-punched by shame due to an act of, quote, stepping out of our lane. For women, this is failing to navigate her various webs, and for men, this is stepping out of their box. However, in most cases, it does not happen due to one occurrence alone. It is accumulated over time by several incidences, usually in one specific area. Eventually, you descend enough to where your fear that I alluded to in the previous section begins to overtake you, and you begin to shut down out of being panicked as hell over the shame that could potentially harm you again. However, a lot of the things that we feel shame over cannot physically harm us, or at least cause no immediate threat to our well-being or way of life. Perspective is a great tool to solve this. For most of human history, people have had it far worse than you and I have. Things like data, science, and sociology prove this. So do the people that accurately describe this in the public eye. A lot of them do it poorly. It is good to recognize who does it well. And I believe Dan Crenshaw is one of those people, and he speaks on this in the first chapter of his book Fortitude, which is excellent. Dan Crenshaw is a United States congressman representing Texas 2nd Congressional District outside of Houston. But, for the most part, Fortitude is not a book about politics at all. There are certain political allegories. It is the man's job, after all, and if you really don't want Republican politics in your thing, stay away from Chapter 10. But the book is, in his words, a model for how to develop resilience in the face of adversity. The first chapter of the book both sums his thesis and the perspective argument I made in the last paragraph quite nicely. The first chapter is entitled, quote, Perspective from Darkness. For those who don't know Crenshaw's story, he served for over a decade decade as an officer in the SEAL teams, well documented as the most elite fighting force in human history. He was a badass among badasses. One day, while stationed in the Middle East, he was leading a team of SEALs and Iraqi soldiers who were working in coordination with the military against the Iraqi uh, Saddam Hussein insurgency on a mission into enemy territory. Crenshaw's Iraqi interpreter, whom he was close with, was called to the front when he stepped on an IED, which is an improvised explosive device, about two, two feet from where Crenshaw was standing. Bedlam ensued. The interpreter immediately lost both, both arms and legs and later died in the hospital. Dan's right eye was blown out instantly, and his left eye was blinded to a degree where he thought he would ha- they had been caked with mud. He suffered heavy bleeding in his knees, and a large piece of shrapnel got thrown through his stomach. Additionally, he suffered of hundreds of small cuts in the front of his body from shrapnel and debris that had shredded through him, so much so that he was bleeding and swollen for weeks, as well as a sizable concussion. Crenshaw then discovered that he was alive, made a joke to his corpsman that getting blown up wasn't very fun, and somehow walked himself with no sensory perception to the medical helicopter. Like I said, a badass among badasses. Crenshaw was then lifted to a military hospital in Germany where he underwent treatment that required excruciating levels of endurance and resilience in the hopes that he could see again. By an act of the doctors called nothing short of a miracle, he was restored 20-20 vision in his left eye and was left relatively unscathed, even though the Navy expelled him from further service. He later finished his master's degree at Harvard, financially bootstrapped his way to becoming a congressman, and ascended to be one of the most recognizable up-and-coming figures in American politics. Even Crenshaw admits that he could not have gotten through that ordeal without much-needed perspective. People had had it harder than him before, and he knew that. His main inspiration was his mother, who battled with breast cancer for five years, never complaining once, until she eventually succumbed to when Dan was ten years old. He thought of his wife, Tara, who had to endure his complaints and her personal dread out of the fear for her husband's safety, the thousands of men and women that he knew would never come home, or would come home in far worse shape than he would. In his words, quote, A healthy sense of perspective is an antidote to outrage. It is an antidote to self-pity, despair, and weakness. It is not a cure-all for your mental state when faced with adversity, 
but is sure to dull the edges of your worst tendencies towards mental breakdown. It is an appreciation of context with which to approach your experience. Perspective from darkness, perseverance in the face of adversity, purpose through action, and optimism in the face of failure are foundational antidotes to outrage and victim culture. But more than that, they're a prescription for a happier life. End quote. There are many other examples of this. Jocko Willink, who, the man who brought Crenshaw along with many other men through SEAL training, suffered constantly. He lost three of his best men in combat, and two, including the American sniper Chris Kyle, after they left the Middle East. He saw death and destruction for nearly 20 years. So many veterans can say the same. The Road by Cormac McCarthy is the most depressing book I've ever read, but it's hopelessness that gave me insight that my problems really aren't that bad when I really look at them. The Walking Dead is also good at this. I stopped watching after... Season 8, I think, or Season 7, one of the two. I think it was Season 8, because it kind of got trash. Maybe you could, it's not trash anymore, but I thought The Walking Dead was great at this, because, I mean, honestly, looking into that show, it could be a lot worse. The zombie apocalypse is about as worse as it can get, so, I mean, as long as we're not there, I think we're fine. But if you ever talk with any, or listen to an interview with someone who would survive the Holocaust, someone like Rose Schindler, they'll provide the same insight. If you have a family member who suffered from cancer or another debilitating disease or a disability, that insight is provided there as well. There is perspective from darkness. Crenshaw's perspective from darkness can also be related to our friend Nicholas Nassim Taleb's concept of anti-fragility. Anti-fragility, according to Taleb, states that human actually achieves strength out of discomfort and suffering, and we need these experiences to be better prepared for the greater challenges of life. There is growth from darkness. But back to the rock bottom of vulnerability. Geez, hiccuping all over the place. Sorry about that, y'all. We hit this point when we feel hopeless, like there's nothing we can do to change this aspect of yourself that we so much wish to change. It is the point where fear and shame start to consume us, when we get constantly socked in the face by shame-filled moment after shame-filled moment, which only happened because we were brave enough to be vulnerable. We close up, and therefore shut out any experiences that could benefit us just out of the fear and shame. It's the worst, and it's hindering us in so many different ways. So... What should we do when we hit the rock bottom of shame? Having hit this point several times, I'll walk you through an example that is relevant to me and steps I took to climb out of it. Like I always say, I'm not fully out of the situation yet. I just don't say it's or I, I don't just say it's hard. I know it's hard. My rock bottom of shame happened about three years ago in the kitchen with my mom. Poor soul. It's hard to believe she puts up with my own vulnerable ass anymore. <clears throat> I was feeling like shit. I just finished the roughest semester of my college career, which had robbed me of my social life and depleted my energy on every level of my being. I went out a grand total of twice that semester, and one time was for 20 minutes while I was sober, doing 18 plus nightclub. Don't I sound like a bl I'm, I'm the lamest person I've ever met in my entire life, so feel free to roast me on this. The point is, I was angry and frustrated with a lot of things, and wanted next to nothing less than a philosophical late night conversation with my mother. The main reason for my anger and frustration was that my social life was always the weak point of my psyche and my state of being, as well as hosting a large amount of my insecurities. And due to the rough semester I had, that took even more of a hit. I felt more alone and isolated than I had ever had in my life. I was envious of others because I felt like I was above them for being such a good boy and doing my work or whatever, but they got to reap the benefits of not doing as much as me, even when I knew nothing of their situations. Victim mentality at its finest. My mom started getting deeper into the talk, and I began to grow more, more frustrated. My mom is like me. She has a lot of questions, which can sometimes rub me the wrong way. I can feel occasionally suffocated when talking to her. I think it's because of that similarity that we butt heads so much. We think and analyze problems the same way, and it can be incredibly annoying if that's you on the other end. 
My tipping point was when she said something about religion. I don't remember the exact context exactly, but I was not in the mood for what I thought was going to be some preachy nonsense about a greater purpose, even though my mom was far from the, that sort of person. So I did what I mentioned people do earlier when they hit the rock bottom of shame. I snapped at her. I yelled at her and let it all go. I emotionally vomited all over the walls. I waxed victimhood about all my problems and blamed everyone for myself for having them. After about five minutes of my hysteria, I began to come back to earth and realize how immature and ridiculous I sounded. My words turned to tears. And let me tell you, when I cry, I cry ugly. My shame was at an all-time high. My rock-bottom shame had been reached. After I apologized to my mom, I slunked up to my bed and fell into it, completely spent. The next morning, I woke up and thought about what had transpired. Why had I been so upset? Why did I think my social life was so bad? In my thoughts, I realized that I had a model for success in relationships. Most people do in most areas. I'm a very family-oriented individual. I don't have a lot of friends, and neither do a lot of my family members. They have their families, and they're all pretty much content with keeping that unit at the center of their universe. I realized I was, that, uh, as I was laying in that bed that that was, not my pro that that was my problem. I had been so consumed with a model success that it was not yet in my grasp that I had begun to view my whole social life as a failure, and that was where my shame came from. I believe that I was inherently flawed because my social life did not resemble that of those I most admired. The main reason is because of the strong bond between married couples. The last time my parents went on a first date was when they were 16 years old in 1987. That's a long time. My aunt and uncles are mostly the same, my grandparents even longer. My best friend at the time, not my best friend anymore, but my best friend at the time, had been in a relationship for two and a half years, and that has continued eight, about a year and three months after this, to the best of my knowledge. We haven't talked in a while. And they're all incredibly happy, from what I can tell, in their own unique ways. So, in an attempt to replicate that happiness, I constantly pressured myself to live up those models, even when the circumstances and situations are remotely the same, especially when I consider the older folks that fit the mold. I put so much pressure on myself when talking to and attempting to get girls that whenever it didn't happen, I felt the same wave take me over and under again. Eventually, I got to a point where the shame turned to fear, and that fear was so intolerable that I didn't want to try anymore. That was the whole semester before the blow-up with my mom, and the blow-up itself was the rock bottom. Through that process, I learned four things. Four things that I believe are essential to do when you hit your rock bottom of shame. In doing these four things, you can successfully navigate your way out of the rock bottom of shame and get on the path to developing shame resilience, another concept by, that, by our friend Brene Brown that we'll talk about later. The first thing you need to do when you hit your rock bottom of shame is to feel it. Let the train run you over. Feel everything. Make sure it hurts and that it hurts badly. Burn it into your brain that this feeling sucks and that it sucks incredibly badly. The reason for doing this is because you need to get the full measure of what it feels like to be hopeless. You need to know despair. Well, you need to know your metric of despair. And knowing your metric of despair, you can then gain perspective from darkness. Look to others who have had it worse, and there are many, I'm sure. Let the pain engulf you, but don't let it consume you. The way I learned this was through the breakdown I had with my mom. It was incredibly painful to resort to that level of emotional primacy in front of someone who was openly trying to help me. And I also had that pain and hopelessness of the quote, no one loves me, girls don't like me, I have nothing to live for, dribble that was splurging out like a busted fire hydrant. That moment when I, was when everything was released, and the pain engulfed me to a point that I was physically exhausted from feeling it so much. The second thing you need to do when you hit your rock bottom of shame is to learn to not run from it wherever you are running from anymore. Running has gotten you to this point. It will only get worse if you keep trying to escape the inevitable. Like Thanos, remember? You don't want to stretch the rubber band anymore. 
that snap will hurt like a motherfucker. It'll hurt worse if you keep stretching it out. The way I learned this was when I collapsed into my bed after finishing scraping my self-pity and victimhood off the walls with a dull spoon. One of the main reasons for that collapse is I was just so damn tired of being so damn tired. I didn't want to keep running from myself and my problems anymore. It's an exhausting life to live, and I'm sure most of you have felt the same. It was time for me to hold the line, stand my ground, and dig in. The third thing you need to do when you hit rock bottom of shame is to really lean into yourself to focus on where that pain is concentrated. This, in all honesty, shouldn't be that hard. You did just hit rock bottom, after all. The biggest hurdle to overcome here is lying to yourself. If you aren't truthful, you won't fix the problem. Focus on where it hurts the most and be very specific. Is it your heart? Your relationships? Your inability to sm stop smoking bath salts or Tide Pods? The more specific you are, the better you can be at fixing the root cause of the problem. The way I learned this was in the morning after, when I had my realization about my model of happiness and family structures and relationships. I had realized that I had been so rigid about my familial model of happiness and my relationships with women that I put a ridiculous amount of pressure on myself to get it right. It wasn't fun, and that's not a good place to be when you're trying to make it easier to pursue romantic relationships. No wonder girls weren't receptive to me. Sheesh. The final thing you need to do when you hit the rock bottom of shame is to turn everything inward. When the rubber meets the road, this is your problem, and you have to fix it. You have to take ownership of your problems, because no one else will. The only surefire way to fix your problems is to take personal accountability and responsibility and take action to fix the situation you're in. Be incredibly critical of yourself, because you get what you tolerate. The way I learned this was in my realization of the comp composition of my family structure. How was I supposed to lean on my parents, who hadn't been on a first date or asked someone out in 30, 35 years, for advice, or anyone older than me in a similar situation? How could that be the model? I had been looking at it all wrong. I had been looking completely in the wrong place. I needed to develop my own model. The way I embarked on doing that was through the venue of something I call the dichotomy of fear. Fear is a motherfucker. It's intimidating and scary. And this section of the, po of the podcast is about to be how to manage and rid yourself of the overwhelming paralysis that comes with this constant shame-inducing fear that you come across when you open yourself up to vulnerability. This is characterized in a phenomenon I like to call the dichotomy of fear. The dichotomy of fear is something that we all experience. It's a highly interesting concept, and one that applies to nearly every fear that you could have about something. Imagine you set off on a journey, like Frodo in Lord of the Rings. Along your path, you find a big-ass boulder in the road you're traveling on. You need to continue on the road. It leads to your goal, where you want to go. But there's that boulder that's there. It's intimidating. It's hard to move. You can't see a way around it. It blocks your way. And that analogy is the dichotomy of fear. The dichotomy of fear is that you can achieve what you want to achieve, but you have to get over your fear that inevitably comes in the way of getting there in order to do so. An entrepreneur can start his or her own business, but they eventually have to quit their day job and lose a stable income for their household. A person can recover from addiction, but only if they put the drugs down and check themselves into a rehab clinic. You can pay off your student loans, but only if you siphon off additional funds from other areas of your life in order to do so. The dichotomy of fear is a subsidiary of the value sacrifice trade-off. It's been a while since you visited it, so let me tell you. The value sacrifice trade-off is, is the bedrock of value economics, the study of how well we use our values. The value sacrifice trade-off states that the more we value something, the more we will sacrifice to get it. The dichotomy of fear is directly correlated to this phenomenon. The more we want to achieve our goal, the more seriously we will go about removing that fear in our path. 
In order to get down our strategy for tackling the dichotomy of fear, I have laid out a series of steps that can help rationally and systematically help you create a methodology of minimizing shame-inducing fear. When you reduce shame, you develop shame resilience, which was, again, another concept developed by Brene Brown. The definition of shame resilience, according to Dr. Brown, is, quote, the process of moving towards empathy and away from shame when confronted with shame, and quote, basically, learning to feel shame, minimize it, and move towards being, unco- being comfortable about the presence of potential shame when you are in vulnerable situations. From the last section of this post, you've now learned that my main source of shame comes from my lack of success in the women department. And as you walk through the steps, I will be pulling a personal example from my shame saga into the conversation in order to see how it applies in real life and hopefully give you a sense about how to make it applicable in yours. The first step that needs to be taken in order to get over your shame-inducing fear is to realize what's on the other side of it. What's on the other side of what you of what your fear is what you desire. That's the value sacrifice trade-off in working action. The fear would not be there if you didn't desire what was on the other side. It's a binary decision. They go hand in hand perfectly with one another. If you truly desire the benefit at the end, it should and will outweigh whatever is in the middle. With this first step, however, must come a realization. You cannot move the boulder in one fell swoop. You cannot rid yourself of fear with one decisive action. If that were the case, shame-inducing fear wouldn't be a big thing at all. You just hop your shit up on a ton. You hop yourself up on a shit ton of Red Bull and bath salts and smash through that motherfucker in about seven seconds, or you know something of the like. No, conquering things like this requires multiple phases of action. You can't eat the elephant in one bite. You can't move the boulder out of the way in one push. It must be chipped away, bit by bit, until it eventually gives way to your constant attention and focus. Discipline is a must for this. The only way to one can be rid of shame-inducing fear is to constantly analyze ways to attack it. This involves aggression, and remember Jocko Willink's quote. Step. Step aggressively towards your fear. That is the step into bravery. End quote. It doesn't have to be Red Bull and basalts unless that's your thing, but it must be something. Remember that these are chips, not pushes. Aggression has a bad connotation in our culture, but it's a connotation that has been completely hijacked. The definition for aggression, me and Miriam Webster are back together, by the way, is, quote, a forceful action or procedure, especially when intended to dominate or master. End quote. If you don't dominate or master your shame-inducing fear, you will not be able to control it, and you want control. Don't let anyone tell you that aggression is a bad thing when it's used in a constructive context. My step one was about a week after the situation with my mom when I got back to campus. I remember getting back to my apartment, laying in bed, and thinking about what had transpired. I was back at the epicenter of my shame-inducing fear. I had just hit my rock bottom of shame. I knew I had to fix the situation, but yet I couldn't see past my fear. But a thought thing came to my head, as clear as any thought that has come to my head in recent memory. I'm pretty sure this is how Isaac Newton felt when I discovered gra- or when he, sc- he discovered gravity. Man, you know what? I'm fucking sick of feeling like shit. If I ever had some type of epiphany and or spiritual awakening, this was it. And I didn't even have a smoke a peace pipe to get there. This was me realizing what was on the other, other side of my fear. A goal I had desired for a long time. It didn't have to be immediate, but at least I would get better so that I could capitalize when the time came. But it also left me with a lot of questions, mostly on how to fix the problem I had been so transfixed over for years. So whenever a young man doesn't know the certain answer to the question, where does he go? Well, Google, of course. 
I went to Google and literally typed in, quote, how to get better with women if you suck at it, end quote. After scrolling through what seemed like four pages of dudes who pay for Instagram followers who do way too much HGH and somehow have enough discretionary income to live on beaches for months at a time, I came upon a page that seemed more down to earth. He was definitely less flashy, lo-fi even. The dude was in the middle of the road in terms of handsomeness and was older. Didn't seem to be much of help in terms of my personal situation. However, there was about a 14-minute video attached, and I was instantly hooked. The dude knew his stuff and did a lot of the same things I was doing now, admitted his personal stories and traumas of those relationships with women in a relatable and vulnerable way. He let me see who he was. I immediately subscribed to his YouTube channel, watched all of his videos, and paid attention to how they applied with my life. This self-reflection was amazingly helpful. It made me realize that what I was doing was wrong. Or it made me realize what I was what I was doing what I was doing wrong, Jesus. It also made me realize that my shame-inducing fear was not rational. I was not a flawed individual. I was just doing some things wrong, but those could those things could be sometimes fixed. The second step that needs to be taken in order to get over your shame, inducing fear, is to vocalize it. This, for some, can be the hardest step in the process simply for the fact that it's very unorthodox to do. Remember the SpongeBob, I'm ugly and I'm proud moment? Well, that's kind of what this is. It's awkward and can be very strange to say at first. However, there is a specific reason that you need to do this. I'm a big fan of Colin Cowherd, one of the most famous sports commentators in, in America. One of his mantras when he comes across a polarizing subject is something he calls the say it out loud test. In his view, if you flush something out, say it out loud, and it sounds insignificant or ridiculous, it most likely is. That is why it's important to vocalize your shame-inducing fears. It will be in perspective how it will put in perspective how insignificant they really are when you look at them in the grand scheme of things. If before we talked about perspective from darkness, this is perspective from insignificance. My step two came when I was brutally honest about my situation. Okay, I have to confess, I cheated at this step. I've done it a few times, so not nearly enough as I need to. I'm treating this post as a personal accountability section, and this podcast as a personal accountability section, as well as teaching the tactics to all of you. I'm a writer and a podcaster, and I think I'm pretty, well, I'm, at least I think I'm good at the writing part. You guys can, I haven't gotten anything bad from the podcast, at least, so I don't know if I'm good at that, but I've heard the blog is at least pretty decent, so. Um, so, I truly assessed my situation and wrote down my perspective from insignificance and my problems with women. The truth is, prepare for shock, that women aren't scary. They're just human beings. They're flawed and insecure, just like men are. In most cases, they're more insecure than men are. So what was there to fear? What's the worst that could potentially happen? May probably get told I'm a creep or maybe get a drink thrown in my face. It's not like they're penny-wise and they're going to my, bite my arm off the first chance I get or there's some type of ter Terminator-esque creature that's meant to destroy all my confidence and fill me with shame. My shame-inducing fear was irrational. Or irrational, I should say. There are no immediate threats to my safety emotionally or, or physically. To further this, if I was ever anxious or in a mood before going out, I would look at myself in the mirror, say something of the sort, and end up laughing. That's how ridiculous it was. Most shame-inducing fears are. This levity will not only give you perspective from insignificance, but will also bring your mood up, giving you more confidence and flexibility to effectively put yourself in a state of mind where you can chip away at the shame-induced fear, boulder, occupying real estate in your head. The third step that needs to be taken in order to get over your shame-induced fear is to analyze your strengths. In order to for form a model to follow and start your method of ex a method of attack to execute, your strengths are a great place to start. You shouldn't look where you are weak to build strong habits. 
you should look to where you're strong. Additionally, the underrated part about looking to your strengths instead of your weaknesses is that you will find your strengths are usually heavily transferable and used frequently throughout your, your others. For example, time management is a strength that can be useful around as many areas of your life, such as physical exercise and social media use. Lastly, if you point out your strengths that are easily transferable, it also gives you an area to analyze that pertains heavily to your shame-induced fear-specific weaknesses. Since shame is unique amongst us all, if you can successfully navigate your strengths, your weaknesses can sometimes stick out like a sore thumb, leaving you with a relatively easy target to pin down what you need to do in order to correct them. My third step was, tough, step was tough for me to pin down, mostly because I thought I was absolute dog shit at everything. That's the tricky thing about shame. Remember, it's, in thing, it's thinking that you're inherently flawed. I thought I was just awful at everything pertaining to the area of romantic relationships with women. But when I was honest, I figured out that wasn't true. I have a lot of female friends. They outnumber my male friends, at least who I am and who I work closely with. I have been told numerous times that I was a great listener, was very honest, was very good at giving advice and they asked for it and held them accountable. And this perplexed me at first. Why did I feel shame induced fear then? What was the problem? I looked further and dug a little deeper until it finally hit me. When it came down to it, I was really good at relationship building, even if none of my female friends and I were romantically involved. I had proof of the concept with this being num true numerous times over. I was completely okay with being vulnerable there. When I looked at the source of my anxiety around women, I finally found out what was wrong. The source of my shame-induced fear came around the approach. It was where I was most emotionally hurt when exposing my vulnerability, which is a common threat around most men. It's intimidating to approach a pretty girl and start a conversation, at least initially. When you get knocked around and embarrass yourself a few times, the shame can overwhelm you until you begin to develop a rational fear. That was when I knew it was where I needed to focus, and I did it by looking at my strengths. Also, it gave me the confidence that shame was not real. I was not inherently flawed. I was just lackluster in one particular area, and that area could be fixed. The fourth step that needs to be taken in order to get over your shame-induced fear is to develop a, set, a series of daily habits in order to start your process of chipping away your boulder. The key here is to remember that these are chips. Your daily habit does not have to be massive, and it shouldn't be for two reasons. First, if your daily habit is so large as to give you more anxiety that leads to more paralysis, you won't take action at all. You'll stay right where you are and no progress will be made even though you've come this far with everything else. Second, you'll overexert yourself and become frustrated when you don't see results right away. You aren't meant to get results right away. You're preheating an oven, not using a microwave. Additionally, throughout the building and using of your new shame-inducing fear-conquering habits, you inherently begin to develop the foundation of your shame resilience. You build up your empathy towards yourself and your situation rather than succumbing to your shame. This enhanced internal fortitude will compel you to eventually move beyond your shame and create confidence within yourself that your goal can be attained and that your shame-induced fear can be conquered. My fourth step was a weird process, as approaching women in everyday life can be an odd thing to accomplish. Let's face it, no one wants to be a goes-up-to-every-human-being-with-a-vagina-and-hit-on-them guy. That guy is the worst. No. It had to be something more subtle. Remember, small habits and small chips at the boulder. I didn't have to go on guns a blazing like Django at the library or grocery store every single day in my life. I would never make it out of my shell. But maybe I could look at a girl in the eyes and smile at her. Have y'all ever noticed that us young people do this odd thing where we don't want to interact with anyone while ever walking on the sidewalk or in a transition between rooms or whatever? We look down, away at our phones, at the person's ass in front of us, whatever. Anything to not cause interaction. I think it's a big source of anxiety for us for whatever reason. 
And I figured that this would be a big source of confidence in me if I could have the courage to let my vulnerability in, look a girl in the eye, and smile, even if there's not a chance I'd see her again. And I have to admit it works, as cheesy as it sounds. Little boosts of confidence like that are little dopamine hits to your brain, and you don't have to use illicit narcotics to get them. So if you're a young woman and you see an odd-looking fellow with a larger-than-average nose who could potentially have them an internet blog make contact and smile at you while walking out of a CVS pharmacy, it was probably me. The fifth step that needs to be taken, and I know this is, it's going to end soon, I promise, in order to get over your shame-inducing fear is to develop one weekly habit that is noticeably a step up from your daily habit. This habit must take place in a different scenario, and it must make you uncomfortable. The reason that it must take place in a different scenario is because shame-induced fear does not discriminate. It can happen any place and any time. You must be prepared to handle different places and different times. The reason it must make you uncomfortable is because fear is uncomfortable and you need to meet fear where it is in order to chip away at it. In doing one large action that is out of your comfort zone per week, you can create a system where you gradually numb yourself to the shame-induced fear. Remember, it can actually hurt you in most cases. My fifth step came a little bit more naturally, because mostly my situation is the same in all places. If you do your due diligence, you should have a pretty clear idea about where your shame-induced fear comes from, where it lives, and how to isolate and attack it. For my situation, I knew that my fear resided in approaching women, that I got really anxious and fearful of it in social scenarios, and I needed to build up courage in order to do it. So, being close enough to the real thing without actually doing the real thing was a simple process. I'd pick an opportune moment with an attractive girl, maybe someone who I didn't work close enough with in class, at least up until then, or a worker at some store, and would strike up a conversation. Again, this is pre-pandemic, so I need to pick this back up again. I would try to ease into it and then develop it over the course of the next five or ten minutes, making a point to flirt and attempt to be funny. Whether or not I succeeded in that fact remains to be seen. But it was a big-time confidence boost for the simple fact that I had actually done the deed. It wasn't the same situation, which is a good thing, and it made me uncomfortable, which is also a good thing. Those five steps are the keys in order to create the chips in your shame-induced bolt and fear boulder. They need to be honed and executed repeatedly. Additionally, every month you should check in with each of them, especially the last two steps. If you find yourself becoming comfortable, then you should advance the last two steps to become further aggressive. The chips will become bigger, and the boulder will start to erode. And you just need to have the courage then to swing the hammer. As we begin to ease out of quarantine, hopefully in most places very soon, or hopefully not, not go back into it in the first place now, there will be a lot of uncertainty. Do we go out now? What do we do? Do we wear masks? Do we wait? Do, will more people die? Who, when, I, when can I replace my hair extensions? Whatever the fuck. There will be a temptation to number of vulnerability with busyness or other vices. Don't give in. Your goal should be to shorten the rubber band, to confront vulnerability and the shame-induced fear that comes with it in order to eventually become better at the whole tackling it thing when it eventually comes around. Vulnerability does not have to be scary. We're going to need more of it if we're going to successfully navigate back to normal, and a lot more of it if we are to improve on the former state of the world. Embrace it, learn from it, and project it because you and the world will be better for it. So that's my spiel on vulnerability, guys. I know it was, it was a long one today. I really forgot it was that fucking long. So I apologize if you don't like listening to longer podcasts, although Rogan has one that goes over three hours repeatedly. But anyways, so that's my track on vulnerability. I cite that post a lot when I talk about it in a lot of my stuff because of the mental health things that I talk about and touch on in my blog. So hope you got some value out of it. Own the day. Open your mind. I don't know if I said, can you dig it at the start of it, but can you dig it on the day? Open your mind. Have a good one, guys. Thanks for listening. I'll see you guys next week. Happens.
stopping, hopping like a rabbit. When I take the Nina Ross, you know I got to have it. I lay back in the cut, retain myself. Think about the shit and I think it well. How can I mix my grip? And how should I make that nigga straight?